welcome to the Feast and Forum podcast. I'm Camden, and for this episode, we're talking about climate change. Now, I know that it may be exhausting to hear constant bad news about our climate. There seems to be an enormous amount of news related to climate change over the past couple of weeks. Massive fires on the West Coast, Italy and Russia, catastrophic flooding in Germany, Belgium, and New York City, and record droughts and deadly heat waves in Washington, which the governor has called the summer of climate change. But there doesn't necessarily have to be so much pessimism about the future of climate change. We're going to be discussing some different perspectives that might make thinking about it at least a little less dreadful. Fair warning, some of this gets a little abstract, but I think this episode says some really important stuff. I hope you enjoy. This week, I asked students if humanity will survive climate change, which is a pretty intense question. Here are a few of the responses. Will humanity survive climate change? Uh, definitely not. Nope. Uh, I, I mean, I want to think that we will, but there's... I don't see it happening. I don't see, you know, like corporations like ponying up and, you know, starting to actually care about the climate when there's so much money in not caring about the climate. I do not think so. In my humble uh, opinion, we're too soft. Uh, we do not have those skills to be able to adapt uh, to, uh, man, just the chaos that will come, lack of water. Lack of food, lack of resources. Uh, everything is so automated and tech, technology-driven. You know, we, we're out of connection with uh, the planet as a whole. Humanity will definitely survive, but at the same time, it's going to be a very, very troubled survival. There's a lot of pessimism surrounding climate change, and it's understandable. Climate change is a global existential crisis that seems impossible to overcome. But there has to be a better way of looking at it, right? I mean, humans have always had to deal with existential problems. So what has that looked like before? What does the fall of a civilization or society look like if that really is our future? To help answer these troubling questions, I turn to an archaeologist, someone who studies human culture and societies throughout history and in modern times. Dr. Maureen Costora is a professor here at the CIA, and I sat down with her to pick her archaeologist brain about these issues. This episode is, uh, is, is really big. Uh, the topic is huge and, and difficult to approach without coming off as dark and seeming like we're talking about the end times. Uh, Obviously, the question, will humans survive climate change, isn't easy to ask and uh, let alone answer. And when I asked students this question, the overall response was pretty pessimistic. Um, a, a lot of people outright said no. Mm -hmm. Why do you think there's so much dread surrounding climate change in our future? Well, I think that people have generally made the mistake of combining the ideas of humanity surviving and sort of civilization remaining the same. Um, I think that most people, when they picture, you know, will humanity survive, what they're actually picturing is not human extinction. What they're actually picturing is societal upheaval. And the one is not the same thing as the other. 
Um, societal upheaval is going to happen. It's inevitable. But it always happens, and it has always happened. And every society that has ever been has gone through civilizational upheaval, and most have undergone collapse, and yet human beings are still present. So I think that that's one thing. You know, people hear catastrophic projections, and they, they take that to, you know, sort of the most extreme. Um, and I don't really feel that that's warranted. I feel like, yeah, there's reason to be pessimistic. Um, but I also feel like, you know, we, we literally have everything that we need to solve climate change. We have every solution that we need. We just haven't had a good enough reason to enact them yet. I'm sure we can all agree with Dr. Costora here. We know how to slow or stop climate change, but it seems like we're procrastinating while the issue worsens. So I asked you guys why this is happening. Here's a student insight. Because it's slow change. I mean, uh, it's not something like, you know, even like COVID where we can, you know, like see the physical uh, ramifications of this kind of stuff happening. Like, you know, with, if, with something like COVID, you can see people dying, you can see people in hospitals on ventilators, but, you know, you can't really see the effects of climate change. Like, yeah, you know, we might have a few extra floods. Like, yeah, we might have a few extra, you know, like really hot days in the summer, really cold days in the winter. But, you know, it's not like the sky's turning red and the entire, you know, country is on fire or stuff like that, you know. So because climate change is so large, it's hard to see its effects. Here's Dr. Costora's thoughts on this. You know, every year we seem to break all sorts of records uh, for climate-related activity. You know, catastrophic hurricanes, um, wildfires, uh, smoke coming across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think there will ever be enough physical evidence to support the need for action against climate change? Well, I think that for the people who are already accepting of the science, there's plenty of evidence now. Um, I think that for the people who choose to disregard the evidence, then no, there is nothing that will ever be enough because there's nothing is going to come holding a sign that says this has become because of climate change. And you notice that after every one of these catastrophic hurricanes, every record breaking year, there's always some line in a story that says like, well, but climate scientists say we can't blame this one directly on climate change. Well, of course not. It's this huge complex system that causes these things to happen. But climate change is always a contributing factor. So I really feel like, You know, there is not going to be any one piece of evidence that's going to convince people. But I already feel like the fields of, you know, energy and manufacturing and all that, they're already changing. And so I don't think we're ever going to have like a, I don't know, a Pearl Harbor moment where all of a sudden everybody gets up and goes, yay, now it's time to fix climate change and we all start moving as a society. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But what I do think is going to happen is that we'll see a slow and almost imperceptible shift towards solutions that combat climate change. The question is, will those be enough to avoid major social upheaval? This is good news, right? I mean, essentially, she's saying that even though the effects of climate change are large and hard to see, the solutions will be the same way. But there are some out there that don't think that climate change is a threat at all or believe that the changing climate is not because of human activities and has more to do with the Earth's natural cycles of heating and cooling. So how do these perspectives fare amongst academics who study these kinds of things? 
I don't know anyone. I'm sure there's like some 1% of outliers who would argue that climate change isn't a threat, but I think almost everyone in the academic community would acknowledge that it is man-made and it is a threat. Um, but I also think that most people would say, yes, the climate has always changed. The problem is that I think most policymakers stop there. They stop listening there. And so then they don't hear the historians and the archaeologists and the climate scientists go on to say, like, yes, it has always changed. And when we look at the past, we can see that there are often pretty negative outcomes to massive climate swings. And those were ones that happened without the speed and, you know, the the massive scale of modern climate change. So we can look to the past and we can see warm periods, moderate warm periods, tend to be good for civilization. We have the Roman warm period, we have the medieval warm period. Um, periods when we get, you know, sudden drops in temperature have tended to be bad for civilization. Uh, and so that's another thing that some scientists, or some, sorry, politicians who go a little bit farther say, oh, warmth is better. It'll make agriculture better. What they don't see is that this is happening with such speed and severity that we don't have time to adapt. So I think most scientists, most academics would agree that, yeah, this is not um, something that we have no experience with as a species. We do. We've, we've weathered climate changes before. But the speed, the severity, and the fact that this didn't have to happen. This isn't a massive volcanic eruption. This is us choosing to take these actions over a long period that are causing this. So it's clear, especially to those who study it, that climate change is a threat and is caused, at least in our modern world, by humans. Recognizing this is the first step in combating the changing climate. And as Dr. Castora has said, we know and have the solutions and are already implementing them. But there's a dark undertone to this. Is it enough to prevent major social upheaval? Well, Let's do a little more exploring of what social upheaval or collapse actually looks like. People hear societal collapse and they think like zombie apocalypse and people, you know, like fleeing in the streets and fountains of blood and stuff like that. And that's not what we see in history. Societal collapse tends to be long. It tends to take 70 to 100 years. It tends to result in loss of complexity, which means fewer different sorts of jobs for people to do. So, um, you know, at base, everybody needs to eat. And so in a lot, not very complex society, everybody has to grow or hunt for their own food. Um, in a more complex society, you have enough people making food that not everyone needs to get their own. They can do other things like make pottery or canoes or something like that. And in a more complex society than that, you can have maybe somebody who does wood inlay for a fancy canoe. And there is still enough extra food going around for them to be able to eat and just do wooden inlay. So today, think how complex we are. Not, we only have like 1% of the population of the United States as farmers. And we have people whose jobs have nothing to do with making stuff. You know, you can have a job as a podcaster, as somebody who critiques podcasters, you know, and that's enough for you to be able to eat. Um, in a social collapse, we lose some of those more complex elements to society. Maybe suddenly you can't make a living making inlay or critiquing media. Instead, you have to, you know, drop to a less complex sort of a job. 
Um, so that's what we see in historical collapses. Usually they'll result in the loss of some elements of society like that, and they'll result in um, a general population decrease, people moving away from large city centers. By the way, there's a certain high number of social scientists who think that the United States has already been in the middle of a collapse since potentially the 1970s. So for the most part, people don't tend to notice collapses while they're living through them. In what ways uh, do, they, do they say we're in a societal collapse? Well, uh, we saw a lot of flight from urban areas starting in those time periods, um, especially flight from the inner cities. Uh, we saw a heightening of inequality, um, and that has continued to this day. Stagnation of things like real wages, which started in the 1970s. Um, and all of that, you know, and, and we're also seeing declining birth rates, uh, which is, again, you know, when people hear that we have a 30% population decrease in this collapse or that collapse, they picture people dying. But it's also just not that many people being born to fill in the places of the ones who pass away. I really hope that this perspective can help us to ease our nerves. We're constantly told that the future of climate change is dark and scary, but the reality of it is much less like a Hollywood doomsday movie and looks more like just a change in our lifestyles. In fact, it's quite possible that society has already been in the process of collapse, and it looks nothing like what our imagination tells us it does. So now that our anxiety is hopefully reduced, Let's look into what solutions might actually look like, because sometimes it feels like we're powerless. Here's some student perspectives that describe this feeling. Human nature is this overwhelming desire to believe that things that are large can't be impacted by things that are small. And inherently, we all think that we're small. We may be the center of our own worlds, but at the same time, we're one in those seven billion the act of a single person isn't going to impact the world as a whole. I think that it's hard to actually take action because it's easy not to. As individuals, how can we be expected to bear the weight of climate change when the issue is so large and far-reaching? I asked Dr. Costora for her thoughts on this. I don't think that any one individual bears the guilt for climate change, but I do think that organizations mm -hmm. um, bear the guilt. I think that, you know, yes, doing what you can to combat climate change is a praiseworthy action. But when, you know, the top like 10 corporations in the world produce X amount of climate gas and your greenhouse gases, then there's only so much that individual action can do. You know, it, it does take community action and I think it takes government action to affect those sort of large-scale changes. If we want to change issues that are systemic, how do we do that? Well, we have to start thinking in terms of systems. You know, we have to, we have to start teaching systems thinking, I, I, I feel. Um, and I think that really that means that you have to understand the ways in which all of the different elements that people can impact alter the larger system. So when we're talking about um, social issues, you know, people want to talk about, um, you know, food, food sovereignty or uh, the food deserts, the ability to access food. Well, that's also an issue of sustainability because, you know, people who are unable to access food are not able to focus on larger issues. 
um, if you want to talk about, you know, what causes a drop in overall, um, you know, like global population. Well, that's an educational issue because places where more education is necessary are places where people have fewer babies. Places where women are more empowered to control their own economic futures are places where they often choose to have fewer babies. And so if what you're trying to do is create a world where the human population is in balance with the natural environment, then working on gender issues, working on um, health issues, working on food sovereignty issues, all of that is contributing. But we don't see it that way because we don't see how those things are connected. We tend to teach, and this is a process that starts really, um, you know, like several hundred years ago as different disciplines are developed, we tend to teach something like biology as though it's unconnected to different disciplines. We tend to teach like, mathematics as though they have no connection, or history as though it's not connected to the rest of this, but they're all part of this larger system. I feel like um, someone might say to this, well, climate change is just so big. The system is just too complex. There's no way that we can, we can think about every single aspect of it. What do you say to that? I think that um, there's no way that any one individual can think about the entire system. But I do think that as a species, you know, we, we are capable of having massive impact. You know, like we basically, you know, we now control the climate of the earth. We haven't intended to, but we do. We control, in many cases, animal evolution. Um, we've altered the way that animals live and breed and where they live and breed. Um, we've altered plant evolution. We can make, through you know, various mining techniques, we can cause earthquakes, we can cause storms. Like These are all things that humanity as a whole has done as a side effect of the choices we make. If we understand those not as side effects, but as inevitable outcomes, not something to brush aside, but something to actively manage, then you know, I, I think that we stand a chance of coming to grips with this huge system. We're only really coming to understand how each little contribution has this whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. You know, um, people saw some of these negative side effects as sort of the, the inevitable outcome of progress or industrialization or, you know, what needed to be done and didn't see their connection to the broader thing. So I think teaching connections and learning and understanding connections is key. So while we may think of action against climate change as a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, switching to electric cars, etc., it's also important to realize that fighting climate change can take many forms. To reiterate Dr. Castor's examples, working on increasing women's education can help reduce the population, which will in turn reduce the amount of carbon humans produce because there's less people. Increasing food access and food sovereignty can help people to start making more environmentally sustainable decisions because they don't have to worry about being hungry. Systems thinking is all about understanding that practically everything is connected. So solving an issue as large as climate change has to involve action that may seem unrelated. So what are some other examples of how we can use systems thinking to solve climate change? Well, one example um, that there's been a fair amount of attention and controversy about is the role of something that's called um, integrated livestock management. 
This is a system that tries to use domesticated animals to fill the ecological places of wild animals that are not as influential as they once were because their numbers have lessened. Um, so for instance, uh, in grasslands in the American West, those grasslands evolved with huge herds of bison moving across them. And the bison were pursued by the wolves. And so you have this system where the bison moved every day or two, but there were millions of them in one herd. And so they were, they were spreading fertilizer, they were knocking down the grass and creating mulch, and they were moving constantly so no one area became too worked over. When we came in, when Americans, you know, people of the United States, European colonists, came into the Great Plains, we wiped out the bison. And we put cows on, but the cows had to stay in fairly small pastures. Um, and so we started to overwork the land. We started to lose the grasslands. We started to see them turning into desert. Um, now, convincing people to tear down the fences and bring back the bison herds is a hard sell. But less difficult, potentially, is convincing people to use their livestock in the same way the bison once lived, to move them reliably. And in places where that has been done, largely by the um, Savory Institute, run by Alan Savory, we've seen a dramatic upswing in species biodiversity and grassland health, and at the same time have been able to produce more food from the same amount of land, which is key to supporting our population. This form of livestock management can also remove carbon from the atmosphere. The grazing animals need plants to eat, and as we know, plants take carbon from the atmosphere, which they store in their roots. When a grazing animal eats the top of that plant, its roots die and keeps the carbon it took from the atmosphere in the soil. This process, called carbon sequestration, is something that virtually all plants can do. The grasslands are much better at sequestering carbon, um, definitely but much better than bare dirt. Uh, so we're removing gases, um, greenhouse gases, from the environment. We're sequestering them in plant life, which can then go on to support the, you know, the environment. Um, and it even helps moderate temperature. If, you're ever spend, if you ever spend time in a desert, you know, the nights are very cold and the days are very, very hot. But having living things, grasses and plants and shrubs, moderates the temperature because they suck in more of the heat during the day and release it more slowly at night. So you actually have less temperature swings. Mm -hmm. So it seems like um, there's two solutions um, in, in that, or two possible ways we can go. We can either bring back the bison or we can go small scale. And I'm sure we can even you know, push it farther than, than the bison. Um, heard oh yes people talk about bringing back mammoths absolutely so um because we're living at this end of history we tend not to think about the things that went on much before us um but in reality you know starting around thirteen thousand years ago we lost a lot of large animals that helped to create ecosystems um, these were things like woolly mammoth or, um, you know, like saber-toothed cats, you know, things like that. And there is a movement um, called rewilding. And the rewilding movement tries, is, is looking for ways to return the balance to those natural ecosystems. So um, 
either through de-extinction, bringing back extinct species, which we now have some capacity to do and we're building on it. Um, so either bringing back extinct species so that they can restore the ecosystem or introducing endangered species from other places that would fill the same or similar ecological niche. So the classic example of this is um, what's happening in South America where um, there were some hippos that escaped from a private zoo and entered the local river system. And um, they're filling the role of an extinct, like giant capybara that's been extinct now for 13,000 years or so. But it was also a wallowing kind of a creature like hippos are. So where there are hippos, we're seeing greater biodiversity of fish. We're seeing greater sort of grasses on the riverbanks. And the local people, although hippos are, you know, super dangerous and violent and all of this sort of thing, the local people want them there because it means they get more fish. So they're filling a vacant spot in the ecosystem. And it's funny because, you know, when we, I feel like when we commonly think about uh, the solutions and what they look like, uh, we want it to be this pristine image of nature that we have. But when you talk about these solutions, that sounds completely unnatural and, and probably scary to some people. Oh, yeah. Well, people, people don't like invasive species. Um, we have this image of, you know, untouched nature. But the reality is that, you know, human beings have been around a fairly long time and everywhere that is capable of supporting human life has supported human life and has been altered by human presence and has been altered by other species. Uh, there was a study, an archaeological study done um, looking at a forest in France. And this forest has not been anything but a forest for 2000 years. It's one of the first royal forests that we have on record in France. And they were able, by looking at the frequency and number of different species of plants, to find where the ancient Roman villa was that had been built in that forest, because there were still plants there that had escaped those Roman gardens. So there is no untouched nature. There's just the Anthropocene. And what is the Anthropocene? The age of humanity. Um, it's the new, newly determined geological epoch that um, really places humans as one of the central contributing factors to a whole bunch of natural systems, whether that's weather, whether that's animal evolution, plant evolution, um, or you know species distribution. All of these sorts of things are now reliant on human action. Um, Many of them have been as a result of side effects, but that doesn't mean they need to be. They can be done intentionally. Right, so uh, we don't need to have uh, this pristine nature because that pristine nature doesn't exist anymore? Is that what? I don't know if it ever existed. We have records going back, well, not records, we have archeological studies of you know species um, prevalence, uh, the number of different animals there were of individuals that go back. And we can prove that for four million years in areas where hominids existed, not even humans, but our extinct ancient ancestors, we were already altering the ecosystem. That we've altered the ecosystem since long before we ever intended to do it, since long before we ever put a plow in there or a seed in the ground or tamed an animal. You know, we've, we're already altering ecosystems then. But not only us. Other species alter ecosystems, too. It's, it's a function of being a species. 
We tend to see ourselves as being very apart from natural systems, like there's nature over here and humanity over here. Um, but that's untrue. We are a naturally occurring species. Um, and we're enmeshed with every other naturally occurring species on the planet, and they're enmeshed with us. Um, and so, yeah, I think we really do need to, to rethink this idea about humanity being apart from and in some way ruining nature. Um, because nature is nothing if not diverse and resilient and, you know, able to, to make quick changes. And I mean, in a sense, and I think this is really cool, there is no way we can stop this from happening. It's already happening. And it's doing it without our attention. So species are evolving to fit the places that we've made for them. Um, think about those backyard foxes. Think about the deer that come to your bird feeder. Think about, you know, coyotes in the cities. You know, species or kestrels on skyscrapers. You know, species will adapt to fit the places we make for them. We've already seen the emergence of species that are genetically distinct from their predecessors because they take advantage of human activity. So an example of this is there's a completely genetically distinct species of mosquito that lives only in the London underground because they've been down there for 100 years since they built the underground, breeding separately from every other mosquito in the world, and they're now a new species. And we're trending that way with a lot of other species too. They're emerging because we made a world in which their previous traits didn't allow them to thrive. And so they're developing traits that allow them to thrive. Wow. It's cool. <laughs> incredibly, incredibly heavy stuff. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it goes against, uh, I think, a lot of our, our ingrained thoughts of, of what nature is. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that rethinking that is necessary to to solve climate change or, or, or live with climate change. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's not as though all of these changes are going to be beneficial to human beings either. You know, um, we thought we'd won when we got rid of the wolves, but there's still a, an empty wolf-shaped hole in ecosystems. And so eventually, either we fill it with something or something's going to fill it without us. You know, we're already seeing the emergence of, you know, a hybrid strain of creature that, that we've been calling koi dog. Koi dogs are coyotes, large dogs, and wolves hybridized. So a koi dog is larger than a German shepherd, um, hunts in solitary, it's not in a pack, and has no fear of humans. It's going to fill the place that the wolf once filled because there's still a need for it. We just may not like it very much. Mm -hmm. I know this conversation seems to have moved completely beyond climate change, but remember that this is systems thinking. We're talking about the human management of ecosystems, which will inevitably have an effect on the climate. And if we're going to manage ecosystems for the better, we can't hold on to the fantasy of pure nature because Nature as we know it doesn't exist, and as Dr. Costura has pointed out, probably never existed. So, now that we know how to find a multitude of solutions to climate change through systems thinking, we need to start thinking about what we want a successful future to look like. 
because we have a hard time thinking about a future with any success at all. Here's Dr. Castor's thoughts on this. What does success look like? People need to be able to picture themselves in a successful future in order to give them something to reach for. And we don't have a lot of images of a successful future that's available to us right now. Like think about TV shows, think about movies, think about image, places that give us images of the future. How many of them are happy? I can't think of any. Like maybe if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, you're going to find some like cheerful depictions of a future, but we don't have that. It's all dystopian. So how do you picture yourself in a successful future where climate change is dealt with if we have no imagery of this at all in our society? No wonder everybody thinks that civilization's collapsing and we're all going to die. We don't have an image for anything else. So I really feel like that's something that's, that's lacking. Um, for our society. We need to start thinking about what does success look like? What does it look like for you as a person? What does it look like for you having a job? What does it look like for you deciding about having a family? How do we live in a climate future that is going to be disrupted, that is going to be in some cases extreme, um, that we can't count on stability in order to manage our needs? How do we think about that kind of a future and come up with a, a solution that's going to make us satisfied. And I think that's work that desperately needs to be done. I really love this point because how can we overcome climate change if all of our images of the future are grim and dreadful? One of the questions I ask students is what they think the world might look like if we do solve climate change. And the answers were really optimistic. You remember the end of the movie of uh, the Book of Eli? Yeah. You know, that how the ecosystem, everything was just in harmony. Uh, it may get to, a, I, I think it would look like that, you know, hypothetically. It would look like that, you know, much more living off of the land, you know, eating things that are in season, uh, you know. I think we'll look more along those lines. We'll see less hunger, more peace, and less people fighting for a chance to have a meal every day or to not get their house blown away in a hurricane. So those are images of the future if humanity completely stops and reverses climate change. But as we've discussed, the consequences of climate change will be felt and we will see some form of social upheaval, which might already be well underway. But this still doesn't mean that our aesthetic of the future should be dystopian. I asked Dr. Castor what her image of the future is. What do you think uh, the future will look like with climate change? What, what is your vision of a happy future? Well, I think that there is inevitably going to need to be a change in the way that people live and work and travel. Um, I think that we're going to be looking at a lot more in dense urban areas, a lot more sort of co-housing, um, fewer big houses with big lawns, uh, less travel, which kind of breaks my heart because I love to travel. But I think that we may reach a future where, you know, we, we pay attention to and balance our climate use our uses of climate and environment in sort of the same way that you know people are encouraged to look at and balance their health now you know how much how much greenhouse gases are you you know inadvertently creating in a day if you hit your max 
Is there something that you can do to make up for that in the same way that we may exercise after having an indulgent meal? We may have to think about climate on a day-to-day basis in that way. And that, I think, would be a form of success. It, it would be something that we could do in order to continue to share the world with a you know, biodiverse and um, you know, fascinating group of other species. But one of the things that we see right now in places where the environment has recovered, like the Northeast, where we are right now, um, is that as we see more things growing, as we, we get the forests back, we see more species. We see deer and turkeys and hawks and vultures and you know all sorts of things that we didn't have 40 or 50 years ago in this area. And so then we have the challenge of learning how to share our lives with those species. You know, I have backyard chickens, um, and every couple years, they some of them get eaten by a fox, and that really upsets me because I like my chickens. But if I want to share a world with foxes, I have to recognize that you know they want to eat too, and chickens are delicious. Recognize the role in the system. Recognize the role in the system. So to try and recap everything we've discussed, remember that. Even though the projections of climate change suggest the collapse of society, we know from history that a societal collapse or upheaval isn't actually as scary as we might think. Remember that there is not one solution to climate change, but a multitude that comes from often unexpected ways, which can be discovered through systems thinking. And these solutions shouldn't necessarily be focused on returning to what we think of as a pristine nature, because There is no such thing as pure or pristine nature free from human activity. And lastly, remember that if we want to have a successful future, we need to stop picturing the future as a dark and horrible place. If we want a successful future, we need to start imagining a successful future. To wrap things up, here's another piece of optimism from Dr. Costora for those of you who still might be feeling uh, pessimistic about climate change. If a student came up to you uh, and was, was, you know, just dreading the future, uh, which I, f- I feel is a very common thing, mm-hmm. what would you say to calm them? I mean, so I would have a couple of different responses. First is the fact that this is far from the only... Um, far from the only or even the worst uh, threat that human beings have faced. You know, um, it may be far-reaching, it may be um, daunting, uh, and it may have the possibility to alter most life on Earth. But so have other things. We just tend not to think about them because they happened long ago and far away. Um, we're not talking about a mega volcano erupting that destroys you know, like 95% of um, human, you know, human beings on Earth, which did happen around 70,000 years ago. We were down to a few thousand people. That was the Mount Toba eruption. You know, we're, we're not talking about an immediate direct threat. So that's one thing. Human beings have survived other things in the past that were um, every bit as dreadful as this seems to us now. That's one thing. I don't know if telling people things could be worse is really going to be helpful, though. Um, So the other thing that I would tell them is that, you know, yeah, they're going to survive climate change. They're already surviving climate change. They're surviving climate change every single day. We are in the midst of it. Um, And, you know, we need to do better, absolutely. Uh, But 
human beings are one of the most resilient and creative species that we know of the earth ever hosting. And we have all the tools we need to solve this. They all exist. We're not waiting on some science fiction future. We have them right now. We know what will work. We just need the willpower as a society and the vision of the future as a society to do them. Well, that wraps it up for this week. I know this was a lot of information, but I hope you got something out of it that was thought-provoking and more optimistic than what you might be used to with conversations about climate change. I want to send a huge thank you to Dr. Castor for her help with this episode, as well as with this whole podcast. She's my capstone professor, so she's been the biggest support for Feast and Forum, and will hopefully continue to support this podcast after I graduate this semester. If you're an Applied Food Studies major, you might be able to continue Feast and Forum with her help as your capstone project. She has an amazing mind and is a great person to work with. And as always, thank you to all the students who came and spoke with me in the egg. Because Feast and Forum would be nothing without you guys providing the forum. If you want to reach out to me about this podcast, you can contact me through Instagram at Camden Miller. The next episode will be out next Friday, August 6th. See you then.